0: The congregation can be seated, and at this time we're going to have a sermon in the bag. We've got some folks bringing up stuff in their paper sacks. We're going to see what's in there this morning. Good to see you both. Thank you. Well, look, here's a bag. Let's see what's in here. Ooh, this is neat. These are fun. Who brought this? You brought this? Now, part of the challenge of a sermon in a bag is to talk about something, uh, the gospel, as it relates to the item in the bag. And um, so, what about this bendy guy? You know, what is it that makes us stand up straight? It's interesting how we can think about what gives us energy and strength? And usually our moms and dads tell us about eating the right food, right? Did your mommy say things to eat? Or about going to bed at a certain time? Did your mom or your daddy say that, Kai? It's time to go to bed? Yeah, usually around 8.30. Around 8.30? Because you need your rest, right? So that you can stand up and so that by the next day you're not like this, Blah. right? But there are other things that help us stand up strong, and they're not always as obvious. Our stomach doesn't growl to help us remember. And one of those things is prayer. I remember my daddy saying to me that he wished his stomach growled for prayer. He said, I always remember to eat because my stomach growls. And then I say, oh, I'm hungry. It's time to go and eat. And he wished that his stomach would growl. For prayer so that when it growled he'd say oh it's time to pray and then he would go and pray so one thing that you can think about because one thing I think about from my dad with that with that story that he told me about his life is that you can pray before you eat you can you can take a moment and remember the goodness of God to you it can take a short amount of time or if you feel like it it can take a long amount of time But we need prayer in order to stand up like this. When we find ourselves going, we need to pray. And when we pray, we'll feel the Holy Spirit in us and the love of God that we know through the stories of Jesus. And we'll find ourselves able to be strong enough and stand up tall enough for what we have to do that very day. So when your stomach growls, it does mean it's time to eat. But I'm pretty sure it also means that it's time to pray. Okay? Here you are. Have a good story time. I'll see you in a few minutes. All right, and follow Miss Sarah. In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Our gospel story this morning reminds me of a story that Bishop Cottrell told at our Come and See event last August. And one of the things that he also mentioned in our time together, that any story that's a good story is worth repeating. So, if you've heard this one before because you were there, then you might recognize it in hearing it again. Bishop Stephen told about a time in his bishopric that he went to visit a church, and um, lead worship. And at the end, he was at the back of the church, and people were coming through and shaking his hand. And a man who was with his wife and children said to the bishop, you know, um, I'm sorry that I'm not in church very much, but I don't have as much faith as my wife. And so Bishop Stephen said to him, well, how much faith do you have? And he said, I don't have very much. And Bishop Stephen said, do you have a little faith? He was like, well, yeah. Bishop Stephen said, how little? Now, if you remember your scripture, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus talks about how little of faith you can have to bring about a new reality. And he says, "The faith, a faith the size of a mustard seed. I remembered that story from Bishop Stephen because we hear reference to the mustard seed in our gospel lesson today. And I don't know if you're aware of how small a mustard seed is, but it will fall into the crevice in your hand. It's that tiny. And if you drop it, even on a clear pavement, you're not going to find it. It is that tiny. It might be the size of a deer tick. So that should give you a good point of reference, you Connecticut people. It's teeny And I'm struck by this man's um, um, lack of regard for something so small. And I wonder, do we really believe that bigger is better? The gospel challenges us in that, and today's gospel does the same. In Mark's gospel, he talks about mustard seed size, about the kingdom, and about putting it in the ground, and that it grows into a bush big enough to inhabit birds. Now, if you haven't mowed or weeded your garden, you might see some things out there that are starting to be able to hold light flying objects. You know, a butterfly is taking rest on it, maybe a dragonfly, and you're like, whoa, that thing has some substance now, right? There are things that can land on it so God in Jesus, in this story, these parables, invites us to consider what the kingdom looks like and is encouraging us in our part and in the only part that we're able to do. With the seed that we have, all that we can do is plant it. Just put it in the ground. That's what God asks us to do. In the first parable that we hear in the gospel lesson today, it's the story of a farmer, and he puts the seed in the ground, and it grows, and he sleeps night and day, and he doesn't know what happens really there, but all of a sudden, stuff comes out of the ground. And when it's ready to harvest, it's his job again to go in and to reap the harvest. It might be hard for us to conceive of that, lack, that amount of mystery, because we have all lived in the age of clear glass and plastic. So if you've known anyone around five years old, you've seen their beans that they've put in the little Ziploc baggie and taped to the window as an experiment to watch the sprout come out, the roots come, and then you open up the Ziploc baggie and the bean will grow up out of the Ziploc baggie. So we have a sense of how all that works. But what we still don't know is when exactly it'll happen. We're not in charge of that. We don't control the amount of sunlight and the amount of rain and the amount of nutrients from the soil. That is out of our purview. We try to do our part, but still, we can't complete the growth of a plant. We can't be in charge of the growing. For those of you that are fathers, you might know in the First Testament, there's reference to the seed, and the man has seed. Right? You don't control the birth or the growth of a baby. The seed's planted and the thing grows. I'm I, I mean being this obvious because I think we forget the mystery of life and the creative act of God and our role in it. And we become um, tempted to think that we control all of this stuff and that we're supposed to control all of it. And if we're not controlling it, then we must be failing. And I want to say, no, listen to the good news, my friends. This is the work of God. Life is the work of God, and we are invited to, to participate in it, to be co-creators through our particular involvement. Plant the seed in the ground. Those of you that have worked with small children know how limited um, or how quickly you realize how limited your capabilities are. I mean, imagine if you're with a, a small child and they have a mustard seed in their hand and you want to encourage them to put it in the ground. Maybe you're trying to coach them as to how to do it. we got to dig a hole and let's put it in there. You don't want them to drop it because you're not going to find it. You're trying to show them how to do it. They need to bend down. No right here in this hole. Not that hole, this one. Let's think of that in a divine image. With ourselves as the child. And God as the master gardener. The giver of life. Can you sympathize with God? Empathize with God a little bit? Perhaps the hope and the frustration with creation the desire and the longing to just put the seed in the ground. Just put it in the ground. I'll do something with it, I promise. I just need you to put it in. And we say, this, this thing, don't drop it, don't drop it. This little thing, what's it gonna do? Just put it in the ground. When I remember that our role is simply to plant the seed, I feel liberated. I think, oh gosh, okay, I have a sense of how to do that. I can't bring about the kingdom, but I can at least plant a seed and at the very least drop it on the ground. (laughs) Even in my accidentalness, something will probably take root. What does it mean to bring about the kingdom of God, this kingdom that God longs for? I want to share with you something that I picked up from one of the devotionals that I read um, in the course of my daily routine. I know you've heard me mention Richard Rohr before and his online little page and a half about maybe takes me three minutes to read it, but there's always something there that I reflect on through the day. And I was grateful to see in the reflections for this week some thoughts from Jack Jezreel, Who is the founder of Just Faith Ministries about what it means to bring about the kingdom of God and what is it we can do? What planting actions can we do that God can actually work with to bring about a just and peaceful world, one where both reside justice and peace. And so Jack Jezreel has outlined six things for us to keep in mind ways that we, seeds that we can plant. First is relationships with those at risk. One of the biggest deterrents to the kingdom of God being made known in the world is our lack of relationship, the church's relationship, with those at risk. Think of the vulnerable, the poor, the oppressed, the exploited, the neglected, the stranger. When did you last occupy the same space as any one of those? Are you familiar with the landscape in which those individuals, even one of them, resides? That's one way that we can plant a seed, just in showing up, being connected in a face-to-face way with the vulnerable, the people who are at risk. Number two, justice education. A second critical component, he talks. He says. Justice education, what does that look like? Well, I know everyone in here values education. We wouldn't live in this community or have some sort of relationship in this part of the country and reside in this part of the country if we didn't value education. Studies show the difference that it makes in the life of all people to be educated. It's hard to argue with the facts. So what does it mean to be educated in justice? This is being educated in the reign of service, being practiced in service. What does it mean to be servant? Reconciliation, generosity, compassion, and peacemaking. This is the vision, Jack says, that Jesus calls his disciples into. Now that's a long list of justice education, so I'm saying just pick one. What word caught your ear? Service? Reconciliation? Justice? Generosity? Compassion? Peacemaking? What article have you read on one of those topics? Who has demonstrated an awareness of that, of one of those aspects that you want to just learn about their life. Jesus did not call his disciples, Jack says, to follow him for the purpose of idolizing or honoring him. Rather, the reason he called them to follow him is that he was pointing toward a new possibility, a holy possibility. This is the possibility we believe in our vision as a congregation a world made whole through God's transforming love and action. These works of justice education help us catch a glimpse of the vision that Jesus has, that he's conveying to his disciples, and that includes us. We're invited into the intimacy and the discovery of what God has in store. Well, if you feel like this is a little hard, then let's move on to number three, which I have to say isn't any easier, at least it doesn't sound that way. But number three is a simpler lifestyle. Consider how it is to maintain your life. How many things are necessary and essential for its maintenance? As Jack writes, the history of affluence is the history of exploitation, which is the history of war. When we look at the schools, the higher institutions that are coming to grips with their participation in the slave trade, and how it is that some of the things that we hold in highest regard and the establishments that benefit so many people have been created on the backs of others, it's arresting. I don't know anyone who hears the invitation to a simpler lifestyle and takes it in stride. You remember in the gospel when this righteous man, a young lawyer, comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? And Jesus says to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The two greatest commandments. And he says, oh, I've done that. And Jesus, looking on him in love, that's in the scriptures, looking on him in love says, Go sell all you have and give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And the man turned around in sadness. Consider just one way you can unleash your life from all the supports that are necessary to maintain it. When we're liberated from that, we're free to focus on the work of the gospel. All right, we're halfway through the list. Number four, take time to pray. As he says, prayer is a way of connecting with our source. It is about being centered, grounded, mindful of the holy, the presence of the sacred, and the precious. Prayer can help us to connect with the poor with open eyes and hearts. It's a prayer that can allow us to educate with patience, love and understanding. It's prayer that can enable us to move to a simpler lifestyle and it is prayer that will allow us to do this with conviction and joy. I think prayer is so essential because the kingdom will not come about in our lifetime. I'm pretty positive. I don't think we're gonna get this accomplished in the next 10 to 15 years. And so often we value what we do because of the outcome and We're motivated to do things because of what we believe the outcome will be right. I am I Get up to my to-do list because it's going to feel great to scrape it off the to-do list. I Deal with my finances because it's going to be great to know that I can retire one day. I Deal with my relationships because I think about the relationships I want to have for the future So often we are motivated by the end that we imagine and want to see actualized. Indeed, as a church, when we're working on our financial sustainability, we imagine it's going to feel good to not always be scrounging around and feel like we're in this place of scarcity. And that's a huge motivator for us. We are invited in prayer to read connect with our source, to be sustained for the long haul, to not lose hope, to find joy in the living of the kingdom, even as we await its coming. And I promise God will deliver on that. The fifth one is a commitment to nonviolence. To bring about the kingdom requires a commitment to nonviolence. It's difficult to critique our own politics, our own country, our own allegiances, because it requires of us an awareness of how violence is so often the handmaid of greed and power. History reminds us of this again and again, and we wish there was another way. And so we are called to be nonviolent. Not because we don't like violence, but because we are people who love like Jesus. And I'm convinced that's the only way to find the strength to live in a nonviolent way, is to fill up the longing and the desire, which can often be synonymous with greed and power. Well, with greed, longing and desire can often be synonymous with greed. And our desire for um, place and certainty, which is often familiar with power, those three, those things that we have, these hungers within us, can only be met with the love of Jesus. And number six, community. As Jack Jezreel says, community is the most neglected and probably the most difficult ingredient for us to hold on to in the U.S. context. Think about community even in your own household, how hard it is to hold on to. And it is so for the most obvious reasons. We've come to worship at the altar of independence, individualism, and autonomy. And as much as we hunger, he writes, for connection, common purpose, and kindred hearts, There is a merciless, deep-rooted entrenchment in forces of competition, personal freedom, and self-rule. So the definition of community is not just about busying ourselves with a similar activity, but a group of people that make very intentional commitments with one another. And again, I draw you back to our work together as a church in our mission our commitment to one another to embrace and live God's commandment to love our neighbors. We are going to do that through our worship, through our stewardship, and our service to others. We say, oh man, this is hard. Maybe planting seeds is harder than it looks. But God says, we you just plant a seed, just one? Don't be discouraged that you don't know exactly how to do it. Just throw some on the ground. Something will take root. Assure the bird will come and take some of them. Some of the things you toss to the ground will grow up quickly and wilt in the sun. Some of them will show promise, but they'll... Be snatched away, and the efforts of them will not come to fruition. But if you could just plant some seeds, I'll do something with that. And look, the gospel says, look at what I'm inviting you into the abundance of God. That's what the kingdom promises. The harvest will come, Jesus says, and you will get to go in and reap the harvest with me. You will be a part of the glory of God made known in the world. And you will be at all. You will be at all at what happened from the fact that you just planted some seeds. This is God's invitation to us in these par- parables this morning. Paul had an understanding of this. I forgot to look it up before today. I can't remember what letter it is that he wrote. Uh, I think it's in Galatians, where Paul is talking to the faithful, these new disciples of Christ, and he says to them, I, Paul, planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who gives the growth. So we get to plant. Others will come along and water. And maybe we come along and water someone else's plant by our actions. But it's God who gives the growth. I hope you hear the abundant invitation to this, even as scary as it is. Because I believe that God will bring us into that with even our first and measly efforts. That God will bless it abundantly. Amen.